And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110 years. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. This is the reading of the word of God. Thank you. Well, good morning to you, my friends, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn. I'm one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is always my privilege to open God's word with and for you. So according to a 2022 Pew Research study, Christians could make up less than half of the U.S. population within a few decades. Christians could, not necessarily will, make up less than half of the U.S. population within a few decades. Just 50 years ago, 90% of those surveyed identified as Christians. But this study found steadily increasing numbers of Americans now identify as either atheist or agnostic or what is now called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those with no religious affiliation. And only 64% of the population identifying as Christian. That's where we are today. And whether the number is 90% or whether it's 64%, I think that most of us realize that just because someone self-identifies a certain way doesn't make it so. Our current culture has made us aware of the fact that self-identification is not always in line with what's true. More specifically, just because someone says that they're a Christian does not mean that they are. Christians are not merely professors of Christ, but they are possessors of Christ. Meaning, it is possible, maybe even likely, that a good chunk of that 90% or 64% who self-identified as Christians are not really Christians. Maybe more alarming than those initial projections, the Pew Research study noted that history has shown that each new generation sees one-third of the people who were raised as Christian, one-third of people who were raised Christian become religiously unaffiliated by age 30. In 2009, Great Britain had reported that nuns, or those with no religious affiliation, surpassed Christians 
to become the largest religious group in their nation. There are more folks who identify as nuns or having no religious affiliation in Great Britain than anyone else. And according to this Pew Research study, based on the data that I shared with you, that trend may be heading our way. Church, if we claim faith in Christ, we have a call and we have a responsibility to be committed disciples who help evangelize and disciple those that God puts around us that they might evangelize and disciple those God put around them and so on and so on and so on. This Pew Research study sadly is evidence that we are not taking seriously that divine call and responsibility that God has not only given us, but equipped us for. To pass on in word and in deed what has been revealed and given to us in Christ. And unfortunately, this puts us into a similar position to that of Israel in Judges 2, as Judy read it for us. Israel lost their way and they worshiped false gods because moms and dads and grandparents and teachers and pastors and other leaders close to them did not show and tell the next generation who God was and all the great things that he had done. And we have much to learn from their terrible mistake and their abdication of responsibility. So let's take a little closer look at this tragic turn of events in the days of Judges for Israel. Let me read, us, read for us again verses 6 through 10 of Judges chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnerathes, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel." The history of God's people, my friends, is a long tale of God being ever faithful to his chosen ones, while they vacillate between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, between worshiping God and abandoning and forgetting God. The book of Judges, in particular, follows this repeating pattern. God's people abandon him leading God to discipline them by causing a foreign people to oppress them. In response to that oppression, God's people cry out in distress, and God, in his goodness and mercy, raises up a deliverer or a judge to save them. In today's passage alone, we see that very pattern play out within six verses and then throughout the book of Judges, it repeats itself and repeats itself and repeats itself. According to verses 6 through 10, Joshua and those who immediately succeeded him were faithful to God. But just one generation later, 
Just one generation later, we see a people who did not know or acknowledge God. Verse 10, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So, what does the author of Judges mean by using the word know in verse 10? It's important that we understand this. When we see the word know used in Scripture, it is rarely referring to head knowledge alone. It is rarely referring to head knowledge alone. And that is certainly the case as we read it here. The author is not saying they didn't know about God. Because every Israelite knew about him. Instead, as other Bible translations of the same verse makes clear, the author is trying to make clear that this generation had no regard for or cared nothing for God. That's what we're seeing happen here. Meaning, there was, there was head knowledge, but no real affection or desire for God. Just one generation later. Now, of course, it is possible that God's people had forgotten about the rescue and the provision that their forefathers had seen and testified to for a millennia or more. But even to the degree that they remembered God's faithfulness throughout that great period of time, it didn't seem to matter to them. That is what is happening. And we see how that plays out then in verses 11 and 12 of Judges 2. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Verses 11 and 12, as I just read it for you, is not a reality without verse 10, verse being true. Verse 11 and 12 does not happen without there being a generation who did not know the Lord, who did not acknowledge the Lord. Where a generation exists who does not know, love, and acknowledge God, false gods stand ready to take his place. That's the danger. The fact is, we as human beings all worship something or someone. God has created us to be worshipers, but our worship becomes idolatry and a stench in the nostrils of God when he is not the primary object of our worship. It is no longer worship. It is idolatry when God is not at the center. And we know this because of the first two of the Ten Commandments that we read in Exodus 20. The first commandment is found in verse 3 of Exodus 20, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment that follows is in verse 4, which says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And whether one uses the term idol or false god, the meaning and the heart behind it remains the same. 
the Bible here is talking about something or someone who is not God that has become so in our hearts and our minds. A false god or an idol is something or someone who is not God that has become so in our hearts and our minds. And that false god may or may not have a face or take the shape of a, of a statue or a trinket or a carved image of some kind, as many of us imagine idols to be. We're not talking about Indiana Jones here. But so long as we have an inaccurate definition and limited view of what a false god or idol is, we will not see the presence and the danger and the sin of idolatry in our own lives or in the lives of others. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is where some of the language that I'm going to use here comes from, Tim Keller defines an idol or a false god as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So, what is that something or someone that you have made ultimate in your life? About who or what would you say, I need this or I need them to be content? Or if I don't have this or if I don't have them, I simply cannot be content and life may not be worth living. What's most deceptive about idols and false gods is that we often make them out of good things. And as such, we don't see them as idols or as false gods. As a, for instance, there are outward idols like money, sex, love, health, relationships like family and religion. And then there are inward idols, like success, respect, power, control, and comfort. And with many and most of those things, they in and of themselves are not bad things. They are good gifts that God has given, but they come idolatrous and they become false gods when we raise them to the level of being God in our lives. So where in your life are you looking to someone or something other than God to give you what only he can? What is on the other side of the heart cry that says, if only I had this? Whatever your answer is to all of those questions, you've likely identified an idol and a false god in your life. And you need to repent. Turn away from that idol as a god and turn unto Christ. Verse 12 of Judges 2 says that the Israelites in particular went after other gods, plural. Baal and Ashereth are mentioned specifically, but their worship may not have ended with them. Israel may have worshiped many other gods apart from them, but these two are mentioned specifically. And we know enough about Baal and Ashtoreth to know that these false gods offered what any other idol or false god offers, a self-centered, 
unsatisfying and twisted version of what God in his grace for his glory and our good provides in full. That's what every false idol offers. A self-centered, unsatisfying and twisted version of what only God can give in his goodness and in his grace. The Baals that the Canaanites and Israelites worshipped were in particular the gods of weather and of nature. And in this time and place, that meant they controlled wealth and personal prosperity because the land and its fruits were how people prospered. Ashtoreth was Baal's female counterpart, and she was the god of sex and fertility, which the fleshly man values for his or her own personal pleasure, of course, but more practically for the purpose of building a family that provides you a personal legacy, and at the same time, creating a workforce to tend the land that you own. That's why people wanted families. And so, with Baal worship and Asterisk worship conjoined, fertility, both of the land and of the womb, was expected. That is what the Canaanites and the Israelites had hoped for. We want flourishing. We want fertility of our land and of our wombs. So, Israel turned away from the one true God who had covenantally promised to provide for and care for them. And they turned their allegiances and affections unto the false gods of the surrounding nations. The very nations, by the way, that God commanded them to drive out and they failed to do so. They failed to do so. And in their worship of these false gods, the God of Israel, we are told, was provoked to anger. Look at verses 14 and 15 then. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So friend, it's important as we hear those verses and read those verses to realize that God is not really after the punishment of his people, but the restoration of his people. God is not after the punishment of his people. They're his own. He's after the restoration of his people. And through his discipline, which is what God does unto those who belong to him, he wants his people to return to him when they have gone astray. The Bible compares the relationship that God has with his chosen people as a husband and his wife, or as a father unto his children. And what do good husbands and fathers seek when their spouse or children are wayward? What does a good husband or a father seek when their spouse or their children are wayward? Well, of course, it's a restored relationship and the ultimate good of the ones that they have promised to love and provide for. And if pain and distress are what it takes to bring about 
the salvation, restoration, sanctification, and eternal good of their beloved, is it not worth it? Is it not worth it? Isn't actively willing the good of another what it means to truly love? Rather than unlovingly allowing them to walk headlong into their own destruction? Which of the two is more loving? And because God is love, he chased and he pursued and did all that was necessary to coax his loved ones to himself. As Charles Spurgeon said it, faith sees that in the worst of sorrows, including foreign nations descending upon you, there is nothing punitive. There is not a drop of God's wrath in it because it is all sent in love. To that end, look again at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So in their pain and distress, the pain and the distress of the Israelites, which God caused, do not miss that, God heard their cry and raised up a deliverer for his people. Now, I, I love how the King James Bible translates this particular verse because it starts with the word, nevertheless. Right? It finishes with, and they provoked the Lord to anger. <laughs> nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. Do you know what the word nevertheless means here? <laughs> it means even though the Israelites did not deserve it, because of the great love of God, they were delivered. God saw his people in pain and in his grace chose to rescue them. Do you realize, my friends, as we read through this passage that nowhere in the entirety of it, do we see Israel repenting of their sin and their unfaithfulness to God? Nowhere. Read through it. You will not find one iota of repentance or heart turned towards God. Not one. What you will see is God's unending compassion, his unending mercy, and his extraordinary faithfulness to his people. In spite of their hard hearts, their thick necks, and their continued groaning. My friends, we are mistaken. We are simply mistaken when we believe that our repentance is the catalyst for God's forgiveness or loving kindness. We are mistaken when we believe that our repentance is the catalyst for God's forgiveness or loving kindness. Rather, as we read in Romans chapter 2 and elsewhere, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We are not moving God. God is moving us. Let's finish up by looking again at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. 
These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites and all who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Throughout today's passage, my friends, it is painful, I think, to see God's people deeply entrenched in sin and idolatry in spite of God's goodness and faithfulness to them. But buckle up, because there is much more of that to come in this book. We will see it over and over and over again. Within these four verses in particular, we are actually given a window into at least a couple of reasons that God chooses to bring trials and difficulty to his children. Reasons that ultimately sit under his heart for restoration. His heart is always for the restoration of his people. But underneath all of that, God has other reasons. First, God brings trials and difficulties, we learn, to test his people. And second, he uses those things to train his people, to test his people and to train his people. So what does it mean then that God tests his people? Well, here's what it does not mean. God's testing does not mean that God is uncertain about the hearts and the minds and the faith of his people, and he has to run a little experiment to learn what we truly feel and think. That is not what it means that God tests his people. If that were true, would he not cease to be God in that he is discovering along with us what's going on? Only one who is omniscient, only one who knows everything can be God. What the testing of God, my friends, does mean is that through his testing, God reveals to his people what he already knows to be true of their hearts and minds. The testing of God means that he reveals to his people what he already knows to be true of their hearts and minds. So as an example, when I go for my yearly physical, my doctor runs a battery of blood tests. When I was younger, I don't remember him doing that. (laughs) Now that I'm older, it seems to be just standard fare. So he runs a battery of blood tests and then the way that I do it is I come in a few days later to review them with him. And when my doctor walks in to see me, he is fully aware of the results. His job is to reveal to me what he already knows. If all is good, the value of that test is to encourage me that things are moving in the right direction and to stay on course. But if something is not good, the value of that test is to reveal what's wrong so that it can be resolved. And my friends, so it is with the testing of God. Where the testing of God upon us reveals sinfulness, a lack of maturity, or idolatry in our own hearts, understand that God has shown you those things in his grace 
so that you would make a U-turn unto him that he might restore and make new what is broken. That is the point of testing. That is the point of testing. And in addition to God testing his people, God also brings about trials and difficulties for the purpose of training his people. So God's people in the time of judges were ill-prepared to deal with the threats that surrounded them, really because they had had no threats. And in his love, God lifted his protection from those foreign nations so that his people would learn how to fight against that which threatened them. In the time of Judges, the peoples and the nations that surrounded Israel were a serious threat, and that's why God wanted Israel to remove them. But do you realize that the greatest threat against God's people, including you and I today, has always been, has always been the evil and the sin within us and the evil and the sin that surrounds us. It's always been our greatest enemy and always will be our greatest enemy because it ultimately leads to our spiritual and physical death. And if we are not aware or if we are ill-equipped to do battle with that enemy, we are in a far worse predicament than those who are aware and those who are prepared. And so, God in his grace brings challenges into our lives to train us and to discipline us to fight against our spiritual enemies, realizing that he has already provided in full the armor and the weapons that we need for the fight. Read the book of Galatians. We have already been equipped. We just need to put it on. So my friends, if we would dare believe that the heart of God is love, our eternal good, and the restoration of our relationship with him, it would be much easier to see that God may have beautiful reasons for the sufferings that we experience. If we actually believe that the heart of God is love and our eternal good and the restoration of our relationships with him, how differently would we see our suffering? And at the same time, might he lead us to believe that our holiness, not our happiness, not our comfort, is what matters most to him. Our holiness is what God is after. So the knowledge of God and the worship of God is intended to be a centrifugal force that moves outward. Meaning, as God gives knowledge that leads one person to worship him, it mu must be passed along from that person to the next and from that generation to the next. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, which is known as the Shema. The first two verses of this passage will likely be familiar to you, but I'm also going to read the four verses that follow because they add detail to the Shema, to those instructions. So verse 4 begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down, and rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So my friends, to know God and love God with all our heart, soul, and might has to begin with us. It has to begin with us. But as our knowledge of and our love for God increases, it must move powerfully into our homes, specifically unto our spouses and unto our kids, through our testimony and through our instruction. Isn't that what verse 7 says? It begins with us, and then it is passed on to our spouses and to our kids. And then after our own homes, the knowledge, love, and the greatness of God is passed on to grandkids and friends and coworkers, classmates, neighbors, and so on. And then finally, as God would lead us, we pass it on to those that we may not know at all. Those that we encounter in our daily lives, maybe in the store, maybe at a gas station, maybe at a party that, we're go- that we've gone to. And then it's also passed on to those that he may send us to as part of his mission to seek and to save the lost, even to the ends of the earth. It is our job to tell. It is our job to tell, my friends, through our words and our deeds, but it is God's job to save And so, if God has revealed himself to you in his word, by his spirit, and through his mighty works, you have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility to make sure that all that he has revealed to us is preserved and protected and passed on to those who do not know. Primarily, but not exclusively, your offspring. So mom and dad, you, you are your kid's primary teacher and disciple maker. You, not the Bible study teacher, not the teacher at school, you. And your home is the most important school and church that they'll attend. where faith in God is made alive and kept alive through generations. The individuals, communities, and nations who hold and share that faith will flourish. That's what we see. Conversely, wherever those who know and love God abdicate their responsibility to preserve and pass along that good news to others, especially the next generation, unbelief and destruction follows. We also see that. And so... We should and must proclaim the knowledge and the glories of God to the next generation while understanding that head knowledge alone does not save anyone. We are not instructing our kids to know about God, but to know him and acknowledge him and love him. Trusting that as we put the kindling of the gospel around their hearts, the spirit of God will ignite faith in them. And the gospel that we preserve and protect and proclaim is this, that the world and all that is in it, including you and me, has been made by God and the world 
has rejected him. But God so loves the world that he graciously chooses to save the condemned and restore and build up those that he has saved even when they are unfaithful. To restore and build up those that he has saved even when they are unfaithful. And sometimes that restoration and maturity may mean hardship. It may mean difficulty. It may mean suffering in our lives because that is the only thing that will turn us away from our false idols and then back unto him. Do you realize, my friends, that there is no length, there is no length to which God won't go to save what has been lost and to restore what has been broken. And the greatest evidence that we have of that radical love That grace and the pursuit of us is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest example that we have of God's willingness to go to any length to save and to restore. It is where God says to all of mankind, this is what your idolatry and your unfaithfulness deserve. Look upon my son. This is what it deserves. But I love you so much that I gave my son to you, that he might bear those sins for your idolatry and unfaithfulness and every other sin that you have committed, so that in turn you might receive his righteousness. I gave my son to experience your death, God says, so that you could receive his life. I gave you my spirit so that you might know what it is to live for and with me rather than the many false gods you would otherwise pursue. My friends, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of the promises that God has made for millennia. And we see the fulfillment of the covenant that he established. All of which were not and are not dependent upon us, but upon him who has been, is, and will be faithful There's no better life to live. There is no better news to share. And there is nothing and no one greater to give testimony to. So may God's goodness and power and life in us make us brave enough to ask God to reveal the idols and false gods in our lives and make us turn away from them because they are not worthy of worship and they will not provide what they promise or what you truly need. Only our loving triune God is worthy, and only he can and will satisfy our basic needs and our deepest longings. And my friends, he has promised that he will do so. Let's pray. Father God, how how grateful we are that you are faithful when we are faithless. How grateful we are that you save us when we are in distress. How grateful that you do not reject us, though we abandon you. Thank you for your loving discipline, your loving kindness, your testing, and your training, all of which lead us to repentance and equip us to live the Christ life. Lord Jesus, the only thing that we have to boast in is you. So help us do so unto our families, our friends, our neighbors, 
coworkers and anyone else we encounter, even to the ends of the earth, that there would be no one who does not know, love, and acknowledge you both now and into eternity. Let us declare your life, death, and resurrection until you come again and bring us home. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen.